Hello, this is Matt Hale bringing you the Art Monthly talk show once more. And today um, we are very fortunate and, and I'm very pleased to have two um, guests on the show. Um, they are Sophie J. Williamson, who is a curator and writer based in London and Margate and initiator and convener of Undead Matter. Good morning, Sophie. Hi, thanks so much for having me. And we are also joined equally by Bob Dickinson, who's a freelance writer based in Manchester. But uh, Bob, you do actually also go to other parts of the world, I think, sometimes, don't you, to reside? Yes, I do. I go to South America quite often. Yes, there you are. I don't know why we haven't got that in our Art Monthly thing. <laughs> At the bottom of the feature that you've written, we usually write things, but you obviously haven't told them to write that. Um, OK, guys. Um You've both written features in the September issue 469 of Art Monthly. The programme, listeners, is to try to make you wish to read the features. We never manage to cover everything they've written, but we try our best to. But because we've got two guests today, um, we're hoping to have a conversation um, where one writer might and I also would ask questions of the other. Um, back and forth. And and I also feel there is perhaps um, a conversation which could, well, at least a connection between the two features. Um, and so I'm going to start by sort of trying to explain what I think it might be. Very, It's going to be a simple um, connection, really. But fundamentally, I've read both features and they seem to be on the edge of art in, in the sense that they're both dealing with forms of art, which are not your standard kind of saleable object, you know, museum easily shown thing. So for instance, um, uh, Sophie says, um, we need to reimagine how we live our lives now more than ever. So you've got quite a fundamental, you know, sort of thesis mm -hmm. in your piece, which yeah. <laughs> that certainly gives him an implication of, I believe. Um, and, and yours is about, to some degree, uh, not only, but very much about fermentation and um, metaphorically and actually. Mm -hmm. And Bob's yours, you say, um, we need to repair the damage done by rampant individualism. Um, or, or certainly that, that was the intro to the to the feature. And, and again, it's sort of um, looking at making art in a quite a different kind of way to the way a lot of people either are made to look be artists or choose to be artists which is as an individual who they you know who have an ego basically and, and are looking to compete in a way and, and and so these are two quite different approaches to being an artist so let's start with Sophie to begin with but but obviously what would be nice is if if in Sophie you sort of explaining perhaps what you've experienced with this idea and literally with fermentation and how you how you mm. see it if 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 bob you come mm. up with this question let's ask questions during it and, and if the conversation goes off to your feature as well that's fine you know okay. and, and i think you know it doesn't matter if it doesn't but we've got <laughs> an hour to do so let's let's play that's, a, that's how i see it <laughs> glad you're laughing sophie yeah. <laughs> Nervous or not, no, I, I think I, you're absolutely right. I think there's lots of crossovers between um, the two kind of subject areas that we're that we've both written about, and in a way, come at it from different ends of of the of the spectrum in some ways. Um, 
but I think the the artists that I've been looking at through um this idea of fermentation both metaphorically and in practice um are artists who are you know fundamentally trying to look at the way that um society can be reconfigured and some of them are doing that through food and and others are doing it through through more kind of conventional gallery based practices um, i'm not not to, don't want to stop your flow but when you say reconfigure society that's a pretty big claim isn't it yeah we might have to get there later <laughs> <laughs> no i just we'll want to actually change it literally change society i mean well we, i mean it, i think it goes without saying is that you know um the way that we live right now is completely unsustainable um in terms of you know climate you know we're it, the current projections are that by 2050 they'll be up to 1.2 billion climate refugees and so fundamentally um the way that we're operating on the planet is is unsustainable and i think that um you know there's many ways like something which i say in the article that you know now seems quite a, an an old perspective i guess but that you know during the pandemic and when we were all um, forced to stay at home and stay more local, there was noticeably in in the UK and and I imagine across Europe and the states also um, this sudden flow of people interested in fermentation and making sourdough breads and making kimchi and kombuchas. You know, I know that I was doing that. Um, me, too, me too, actually, kefir. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, every, everybody was. That, that there's this almost, you know, when the world outside is falling into terrifying disarray, there's almost this kind of very primal, primordial um, response that that many of us had of like getting up close to the earth and being aware of these microbial biomes that are surrounding us and that we're part of and feeling. Um, you know feeling you know which is something which is very much in in artistic discourse and, and theoretical discourse you know writings around like Donna Haraway's um, and Anna Singh's ideas around ecological entanglement and removing this idea of the individual as a boundaried um, individual being and instead thinking of ourselves you know within ourselves as uh, microbial communities and how we live this kind of symbiotic relationship with nature um that's yeah, so really interesting in relation to to, to to bob's piece where you're talking about you know perhaps not working as an individual artist that maybe that's a bit too big a leap because i mean you, what you're saying sophie i kind of don't truly understand what what does it really what does it mean microbial what what is it just can you explain microbial that? communities well so there's this wonderful because of the body there's this wonderful book i mean i'm going a little bit off topic we'll come back to the article but <laughs> there's this wonderful book uh by um ed young who um it's called um i contain multitudes and he says that um you know he talks about our entire body being this microbial universe in itself this whole world of different of different microbial biomes that you know we fundamentally depend on as as a as a as a living human body we need all these other 
bodies within us that keep our kind of gut going you know the gut's probably the most obvious thing but but you know we have an entire microbial community on our left hand which is completely different to the microbial community on our right hand mm. and so we think of these kind of like you know good bacteria and bad bacteria but actually there's this kind of entire multitude of of beings and interrelations that are going on inside us all the time um and i guess you know some of the artists that i'm looking at through the article are you know thinking about those microbial biomes within the foods that we eat whether that's kind of breads or cheeses um and the kind of fermented foods that are that have a real historical lineage within societies and histories and how fermentation has collected these histories within the food but also how um that can expand up and translate these much larger um structures of society and global ecological entanglement um and, uh, and all... this is bob go on bob no, sorry uh sophie i think you also in your article you're talking about the way that it it the the, what you're talking about crosses over the boundaries of life and death as well. Yeah, <laughs> I think, yeah. Um, so as well as individuality. The article, the article was really influenced by this um, essay um, by Reza Negrestani called The Politics of Decay. Yeah. And he's writing about decay um, as this process of becoming undone, of, of things... Um, dissolving and decaying not into nothingness but as into instability and he's writing from he's an Iranian philosopher um as I'm sure you, sure you know and he um he's writing specifically from the context of of the Middle East and thinking about decay as this process of putrefaction that in itself kind of pulls the rug from underneath any structure so he's in, he's in particular talking about kind of the polit political structures in the Middle East, that once there's this political decay, you know, of governance, it creates a space which um, brings about a certain freedom or, or autonomy to uh, that can operate within the kind of fermented, he calls it, um, this kind of soft uh the underco undercover softness so this this kind of um softness that cannot hold on to a political structure a political structure cannot hold on to it um so decay becomes uh a, a, a possibility of not just creating a new but of refusing um these dominant structures um, and so, you know, I was looking at this as a as a decay as a political process and then realizing that actually fermentation does something, you know, much more optimistic and uh, and potentially much more powerful than that, because um, fermenting is a similar process to decay, but uh, to ferment, to actively ferment, you have to instigate some action so you create this kind of excitement between the matter um and creates this kind of vivacity to it and mm -hmm. it becomes a space of um 
of excited potential and of of possibility and optimism in a way that perhaps decay doesn't it's you know decay is uh decomposing or you know composting is something which is really talked a lot about in many artist practices um you know this idea of returning to an earthly biome but fermentation does something more active than that i think of this you know um choosing actively choosing a new path i'm, I'm really interested to know the kind of position of metaphor in this because um Obviously, there's, I, you know, I tend to be quite literal about a lot of things, even as an artist, I sort of, I'm a bit too literal, really. But at the same time, metaphor is something that I've always been a little wary of as well, just because it's sort of parallel and not actual, in a way. Do you know mm. what I mean? Mm. And this idea of, I completely understand the, 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 the metaphorical sense of what you're proposing, as it were, in terms mm. of fermentation, but... In reality, in the reality of of say Iranian politics, mm -hmm. which is, I, I, there's a sort of leap. <laughs> well, which maybe I don't to undermine. You're, you're making the leap, or I could or, I could maybe give a few different, making it, but I could give a few different examples that maybe operate. Well, that would be real. I think it'd be helpful if if you can. Yeah, do. Okay. Um, because I talk about quite a lot of artists in. in you do in I can remind you of something <laughs> like. But I well maybe I could start with kind of talking about um, Kalitha Lay, who is uh, an Iraqi Scottish artist, and and in a way, a lot of the article came from this you know, beautiful meal that we had um, up in Huntley in Scotland in Aberdeenshire, um, which in a way is, is goes back to what you were saying about artists working outside of kind of the typical um, contemporary art systems. Is that um, it was a project that was um, hosted or initiated by Devron Projects, which is such a wonderful organization and is very kind of localized. And Kalthas project was completely different from being in, a, a, you know, a dinner in the art world in London. It was, you know, the rest of the guests were, you know, local farmers and brewers and gardeners and teachers, um, people that were really invested in the landscape and the food that she made was all about telling a story of both her own Iraqi Scottish heritage and the heritage of the, the food in the, in, in the land and in the place. And so the meal that I went to was based on milk, um, was in these kind of rolling hills amongst dairy farms. And within an individual food such as milk, um, she wove together these many different stories through the different types of fermentation of the, the milk into cheese, into different cheeses. Um, and through storytelling, through the fermentation process, she is she was able to draw together, you know, not just the kind of colonial histories of, of the UK and the, the histories of the Aberdeenshire farmlands, but also the recipes that her family had brought with from Iraq and she she grew up in Iran as well. So bringing together these kind of Middle Eastern stories and relationships to cheese and fermentation and where these, um, these histories of fermentation across different um, cultures and cultural histories, so social histories can come together in the present. Um, so that maybe is, is um, a very hands-on experience of fermentation um but then there's other ones which are um perhaps also using food 
and fermentation as um, as means to retell stories. So, for example, I talk about Myrna Bame, who um, has this wonderful project. She's a Palestinian artist. She has a project called um, Palestinian Hosting Society. Um, and with her with her installations, which do operate in a much more um, well, they operate in different ways, but but the piece that I write about um, was held at the Sharjah Biennial. It was called Sour Things in 2022. Um, and uh, in, a, in a kind of, um, you know, within this exhibition context of the biennial in a, in a old sh shopping mall, um, she put together different fermented foods in different shop fronts. And each of those in a way held together, not just the politics of Palestinian um, culinary history and the, the kind of cultures that surround that culinary history, but also operates as a way of um, resisting um, the, the violence that's imposed on the Palestinian people in the contemporary also. So she talks about food being able to travel in a way that they as citizens can't. And this way that um, you know, their culture is being violently eradicated and by holding on to culinary histories and practices, it keeps that collective um, culture alive in the diaspora. And so it's operating in these two different realms of kind of both the, the kind of poetics, but also in a very practical sense of of keeping fermentation alive as a practice that 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 keeps a, a culture and community alive with it. Not not to bring them down to a, a, a simplistic way, but the the first one example you gave was like a performance in a sense. It sounds sounds, mm. which again mm. is a form which has become incredibly much more popular mm. with artists. I feel over the last I don't know how many years now but it's probably longer than I think and the second one is is also it's, it's presenting something which you, you couldn't buy it very easily could you it's not it's not, not you know fermentation as a and food you can, it, you could sell it a certificate of how to do it again maybe but it's not, well, not, it's not involved with with with, with <laughs> object selling stuff so it's very very different yeah but plenty of art operate within a commercial system I mean we've got a long history of of socially engaged practices and you know sure. like it, it i mean maybe it operates more in that realm um and i i think a lot of artists who are working in food and fermentation naturally operate in a very blurry space in between like last year it, it's, it's, it's food as a as a kind of program strand i think is interesting to think about as well because it's also something which has been really um embraced, I think, by a lot of, of arts institutions. If you think about uh, the Climavore program that's operating in many different arts institutions or um, Delfina Foundation has been operating a food program for a long time. I did this beautiful residency last year at Jan van Eyck where they have a food lab um, and there it kind of links to um, a future materials lab, nature research with gardens that they're growing. Um, and there I spent the year with with artists who were um, working in food and fermentation and agriculture and, you know, that they're people that, you know, by their nature, and this is true of many artists in many different realms, of course, as well, is that, um, 
you know, the artists working in in food and fermentation are often also working within the realms of um, of ecology and agriculture and sustainability and you know bringing all these different specialisms together on a plate um, to be able to share a lot of that research and ethos through food and so they're not worried about whether they're artists or not in, in some ways they're just yeah just maybe it doesn't matter love. at all yeah no, no, I, i'm not disagreeing i wasn't it wasn't meant as a yeah. it, was, it was just yeah. a draw out the differences between some artists and 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 these people perhaps but yeah um probably a bit simplistic but um good because obviously there is a history i mean you mentioned gordon matter clark carol gooden and tina um girards you know they're new york art artists run restaurant in, in the 70s and um, where they served food as a it was a cafe wasn't it basically yeah i mean so and and and, and you mentioned i think rick Crit. Chiravinaja, similarly, and Rashida Reems now. Yeah, he he's got Shamiana, a cafe which he's yeah. opened once, and I think it closed again. And I think it's opened again currently. But again, yeah, I think, I think the it, place it, to go and be to he wants people to come and talk over food who wouldn't yeah. meet otherwise. Yeah, I think food is like you know, food as art practice has a long history as being a space which is you know, a, a hosting structure, a space to bring people together, a discursive space, a hosting, you know, a place of hospitality, um, but fundamentally a place where you can bring different ideas together, literally bring them to the table. Yeah. Um, and I think that that, that history is now um, feeding into, seeping into this, this kind of interest in fermentation and sustainability and ecological futures in in a really provocative and meaningful way yeah it's interesting that, that it changes the kind of traditional idea of what 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 is art and what is an audience for art and i'm yeah. kind of wondering what 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 it leads to what what does it uh, do i mean it, i can see how it, this this kind of practice will offer something to a community people mm. um i'm but i'm wondering what 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 how it changes people how, and what kind mm. of changes you you yourself are interested in seeing mm. happen mm. well i think it's interesting that you know for me personally all brilliant art work operates on many different planes right and 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 engages many different audiences um so with Kalfa's work you know it, it was really deeply engaged and um and in kinship with um you know local farmers local kind of dairies um local producers yeah um you know that might be doing it as their jobs but might also be doing it as kind of their hobby or just their kind of own sustainable gardening that they're feeding themselves through um but then it also operates on in within the realm of like artistic discourse you know it being part of an arts institution that then feeds into you know arts media that then is discussed in a conference somewhere else and yeah. and and I think that's even more true um with um with Beamer's work for its uh work for example um that's working in the kind of international platform of um 
of the Sharjah Biennial. And, you know, her work is working with, um, you know, the elders of the community, the, the, the mothers and the grandmothers um, who have these culinary histories, these recipes that they've been passed down through, um, through their relatives. And so it's working on a very one-to-one or community-based uh, level, as well as then operating in the kind of region of uh, international artistic cultural discourse. And I think that, um, I mean, art obviously has that uh, means of operating and translating through different fields, but so does food. So these artists working with both, um, you know, food is perhaps a lot more um a lot more accessible as a starting point than contemporary art so it can perhaps bring in um a broader audience from from the offsets that you know to walk into mm. um the the shopping center that Myrna was working in um is probably not as intimidating for a large proportion of of you know the general public than walking into a contemporary art center sure sure um and also presumably some of the people involved with the work um mm. might not be artists at all and so you're bringing in people yeah. in the art world who actually you know they wouldn't be there at all yeah and i also not think it's thinking about you know like you know I, I mentioned noma in the article um, and Sandor Alex Katz, who is a food activist and food writer. And in a way, it doesn't matter whether it's art or not anymore. It's that it's operating in these different realms. Um, and so I think Noma is probably a really good example of, you know, this kind of elite world that, that contemporary art is often seen to be part of as well, is that, you know, um, Noma have had a fermentation lab operating for many years as part of their restaurant. You know, so Noma, you know, um, for a long time was was you know number one best restaurant uh in, in the Michelin guide or whatever um and you know it set a precedent for restaurants really thinking about you know where their food was coming from the relationship that it had um on the plate to agriculture and sustainability and you know local ecologies of like really working with you know, local environment and sustaining that local environment. And whilst, you know, restaurants like Noma are completely inaccessible to the majority of the global population, <laughs> um, you know, that, that that has this filter down impact um, into a much larger um, structural um, processes as well. I mean, like there are far more restaurants, for instance, where they do foraging of their own of the food or very local food. Yeah, but I mean, I think that in itself is also, you know, is is wonderful and beautiful, but it's also still for like, you know, an elite few. But it's interesting how that that whole discourse then might feed into a food supply chain at Sainsbury's and thinking about, you know, the the. Um, ingredients make up of like their you know cheapest white loaf and and you know through through other projects and other routes of research I know that, that those conversations are happening and so we're part of this kind of fabric of discourse um that you know artists and chefs and farmers are all part of you know and an artist working in fermentation can be really meaningful in kind of 
you know, creating the poetics around that discourse and, and allowing a space which people can engage with and think about in a different way. Um, and it can be, it can be, you know, deeply political as well. And, um, you know, I always talk about this artist, Sujatro Ghosh, um, who made um, a piece called um, The Prosaic Algory um, The Hungry Streets, which is about the Bengal famine of 1943 where three million people died and what he had in the end installation was this collection of kilna jars with different fermented foods in it but they each tell a different personal story from a survivor from from that famine um and keeping those oral histories alive through the kind of tangibility of an exhibition space um is one of many ways within a fabric of of kind of cultural, political, social discourse um, that feeds into, you know, changes being made and implemented on this these structural levels. I've always liked the um, way that with um, sourdough bread and kefir, you kind of, you have to have this thing given to you from somebody else to yeah. start, start yeah. your bread or to start your kefir. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but and you've got to keep it. You've got to keep it alive. Yes, and if you yeah. stop, yeah, if you leave it too long and don't yeah. do, don't use it, it will die. And that, that's a, just mm -hmm. metaphorically. That's quite interesting. But also literally, mm -hmm. it is. It's a. You know, you have to rely on somebody else to get what you, what you want, and they have to be generous enough. I just got it in the post. You know, I think I, I don't think yeah. I paid for my kefir grains. They arrived. I couldn't believe it. They arrived in a little plastic bag in the post from someone I'd never it, met. I think that's true with all of these works that are working with fermentation. It's really, um, you know, it's it it kind of forces you to recognise your agency within the context because you have to kind of be very in tune with these, you know, the, the micro um, climates that you're working with and, you know, with the kind of micro relations that are surrounding us all the time. And so fermentation is is fundamentally a practice of care. Yes. You know, yeah. unlike no, I, decay. That's what I have to do with my kefir. I mean, it's like, yeah. you know, is it left long enough? Have I had it in the yeah. fridge too long? Yeah. Should I must use it. It won't yeah. be happy if I don't use it. And... Yeah, yeah. So these practices of care that come through fermentation are then used as, you know, an analogy to scale up to these these broader um, processes of care that are, that are really needed. Now, now listen. Um, it does seem to me I, I, to, we, to go to Bob's feature. The example you begin with, Bob, is is not one of optimism in a way, really, because it's a kind of failure, if I if I read it correctly. But you you might disagree. But you talk about a guy called Darren Bader or Bar Bader, Bader, and his work twenty years selling my practice. Um, just tell us about it. If there's no connection directly with what we've just been talking about, it's not a problem. But it, what did he do? <clears throat> Well, he's a he's an artist. He's based in New York City. He um, uh, and I, I literally was I was in, uh, I was in Antwerp, in the summer earlier in the summer, and I saw a copy of the New York Times lying on a chair, and I picked it up, and I, on page two there was a piece about Darren Bader, and he's he was he has been trying to sell his art practice. It, and he's calling this project 20 years selling my practice which is not the same as selling your work 
No, it's selling your entire practice, your entire um, history of being an artist, your name, uh, your back catalogue, uh, and the right to, to use that name, Darren Bader. And he, um, he's he got a history of being a quite a, I guess, quite a sort of playful, conceptual artist. Um, uh, and I, that started me thinking because I'd seen the previous day, I'd seen a Robert Wilson production in Dusseldorf. Uh, and I've been thinking a lot about Robert Wilson as well. And so this idea of attachment uh, came to mind because what is it? What is it for an artist to to, do, to become unattached to his or her uh, practice to actually want to sell it? I mean, obviously there is a humorous aspect to this, um, and I'm not sure how or, or, or wh even whether he really expected to to completely sell his practice. And when I got in touch with him later on, um, it seems that he hadn't had a serious offer. Um, he was looking for a seven figure, se sort of seven figure amount of money um, to, to pay for his practice. Uh, but- That's quite a lot of money. That's quite a lot of money, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and I was thinking, well, what is it to dis to, to just become dis disattached, unattached from from what it is you've been doing for that long? And um, and I was thinking of uh, I then sort of started thinking about theories or psychological theories of of attachment, um, and I was very struck by the work of John Bowlby. Um, a psychologist from the 1950s and 60s who wrote the sort of definitive work about attachment, which which came out as a pelican book. I can remember seeing it when I was a teenager um, with a, a fantastic photograph on the front taken by Roger Main uh, of a um, mother and child. And, uh, and, and Bowlby and the work work done by psychologists in the in the sixties about how um, babies and children uh, learn about attachment through having a caregiver, a mother or a caregiver of, giver of some sort, um, building up um, a a kind of working model of how attachment works in the baby's mind, in the child's mind, and then I. That, that led me to to talk a little bit in the article about Daniel Stern, who is a, a, another psychiatrist who uh, was working in New York in the 60s and 70s with mothers and babies filming um, these um, the interactions that are kind of performed by the mother to the baby and slowing the filming them and slowing them down, slowing the films down. And this had a an effect on 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 Robert Wilson, who was a friend of Daniel Stern, and and I've and I've been very interested in in Wilson's work as as a theatre director and a performance artist, um, and I've been wondering and thinking about how Wilson's productions 
use these ideas that Stern developed um, and uh, and basically we you know one of the things that, that Wilson does is he he slows things down enormously <laughs> and um, I I saw a production of, of Wilson uh, Robert Wilson's performance actually uh, and production of um, of Beckett's plays Crap's Last Tape several years ago um, in which, you know, I'm sure the Beckett uh, estate would have, would have looked at, looked at it with some alarm. I don't know them, the, but the opening sort of 25 minutes of Wilson's version of Crap's Last Tape, Crap's Last Tape is about a man who spends uh, his every birthday listening to tapes he recorded uh, evaluating his whole life and he argues with himself about what he's recorded uh, but in the Wilson version of Crap's Last Tape you you see Crap uh, and Crap's den uh, and you, you nothing happens at all for the first 20 or 25 minutes it's just the sound of rain in the Wilson version <laughs> And I just thought this isn't. I'm not sure whether Beckett really wanted it like this, but it's it. And and of course Wilson does things very very much influenced by uh, Japanese and no of theatre. So there's a lot of kind of gestural work and freezing of the body. Um. Uh, so so yeah, I, I, that sort of led me to start. Playing around with ideas of 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 attachment and separation in in uh, in uh, contemporary art. So in Darren Bader's Bader's um, example, is his attachment to you? Would it be the one with the art world? I.e., his attempt yes, to. I, to I was I was asking. Right, yeah, because it kind of makes you wonder, and I think he wanted to make people wonder what he would do once he'd sold it. Once he'd sold his identity, sold his back catalogue and everything, wh where would he go? I've always thought that Michael Landy's thing where he trashed all his possessions, but it, I've always yeah. slightly, slightly disappointed that he just went back to what he was doing before or afterwards. It's so, interesting yeah, I think Darren, I think... because there's this relationship to kind of like the speed of, you know, going back to what you were saying, Matt, at the beginning about this relationship to the art market, there's there seems to be an interesting relationship that you um you touch on in the article that relates um to the kind of the speed of you know commercial production and the slowness of kind of care you know that they're they're, they're yes. operating these two conflicting ways and maybe there's something there about this desire to like sell his practice which feeds into the demands of the kind of constant churning out of you know capital yeah, that's true. I mean, I also was thinking, what else, what other kind of, what are the other things that we are, that artists look at in terms of attachment and 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 again, it's another slow thing, and and that's that's clothing. Um, and uh, I I um, was interested in this this uh, artist duo, artist A and artist B who are based here in, in the Northwest of England. And 
they are do they are doing this project at the moment called the surplus badge which is is um it has been using a um a ministry of defense parachute to make to make clothes and to make um a whole kind of performance involving the public um and uh they thought they were going to get uh when they sent off for this parachute, the, 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 it's a reference to the the era in the 1940s and 50s when 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 women would make bridal gowns out of parachute silk because it's really good material, and uh, there was it was you know it was available at the time in the years following the Second World War, and um, when artist A and artist B, they're they're, they're um, they're, they're women artists they're called Jackie Haynes and Heather Ross, and the A and the B can refer to either of them. They it's interchangeable pseudonym, and uh, yeah, they sent off for this MOD parachute, and and they thought they were going to get a single person parachute, but they got a cargo par parachute, which is an enormous great thing. So they had a huge amount of material to work with, and. They work, you know, by hand, stitching things, and they get people helping them to do this. Um, and they've been working in a um, a place called Townley Hall, which is up in in the Lancashire um, near near Burnley. Uh, and um, uh, they're, they're they're very much in, working. I think also in the tradition of Kurt Schwitters and Raoul Hausmann. The, Dada artist, and in terms of trying to make um, art out of everyday life, and how to and making everyday things into art, uh, and that's what this this project has has been about. And it's been it is a slow it's a slow developing project, and it's it's had various uh, uh, events uh, into which the public have been involved in which the public have been involved, and to which to which you can get get yourself involved, um, and uh, I I think that that aspect of attachment is 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 something you know clothes are intimate things but you, you have them on your body um, they're right next to your skin and uh, I don't know what uh, you you think about clothing but I I'm uh, quite sometimes neurotic about. <laughs> about what to wear and uh, and uh, all the processes surrounding clothes as well the making of clothes and the the the, the maintenance of clothes is a fascinating kind of area I mean in a way the way that they're working is completely counter to you know one of the biggest pollutants that we have in the world which is fast fashion yes exactly so it's interesting that both of those artists that you just talked about you know, have this relationship to kind of letting go of their ego yes. um, and trying to find a way that operates outside that kind of egocentric drive. Sure. Um, sure. And, and possibly handing over to something which is, you know, seeking a, a slowing down or a, or, or a way of being more part of a, a kinship rather than, you know, this fast pace kind of, and also, you know, branding of the self, which I think comes with that as well and you know can't, comes with you know artistic practice of of you know needing to brand and package oneself 
and both um, Artisan, Artist B and Bada kind of have refused that kind of branding of oneself. What about, um, yeah. sorry, Bob, what about this artist you mentioned um, who had a sign saying artists will work for access? Is it Anna Mendieta? Is that, have I got the right person? Uh, Cuban born that's, that's, that's Laura Aguilar. I, got, I, I thought I might have got it wrong way around. Apologies. Yeah. Laura Aguilar. Aguilar. Uh, uh, Laura Aguilar. Yeah. Because that, that, that was somebody who was sort of trying to get access to the art world. Yeah. Wasn't succeeding yeah. and then made a work about how she wasn't and with a sign. Is that is that right? Yes, that's correct. Yes. Um, and she did this uh, very kind of upsetting series called um, uh, Don't Tell Her Art Can't Hurt, where she sort of took photographs of 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 herself um uh with various captions talking about her kind of i suppose it's a semi-fictionalized version of her own experience of or her own feelings about relating to to the art world she's a she was a, a latinx um art artist working with photography and um and in, you know, in in the in the final photograph, she's she's pointing a gun at herself because you know she's that frustrated. And they're, they're very revealing and uh, upsetting photos. Yeah. And she seems like kind of not to call her negative, but the, this is like the the what the the what do I do? I can't do anything. Approach and presenting that that difficulty. Whereas whereas the other artists we've been talking about, yes. Have tended to fight, be trying to say, well, I'm not. We're doing it another way, and I'm I'm going to look look somewhere else for 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 my my for my life to be better, and not not rely on this kind of glass ceiling kind of situation. Is that is that is that right? Because yeah, I mean, I think you know, all artists come come to you know develop their practice and come to it from different perspectives and different walks of life, and it, I. I and and it, it depends where you come from, where you live, where you where you where you go. Uh, I suppose your relationship to what you do. Um, there were people with, with clothing as well, weren't there? You had T-shirts, but not new ones, carrying idealistic slogans. Was that? Was that? An, um, is that is that also Laura Aguilar? I was just thinking. Uh, it, was, it was another yeah. another way of using clothes. Yeah, I, I mean, I was th the other thing I was thinking about in this article is that also about the this idea of of in of, of what it is to, to be a separated person, to be to become unattached, and I'm relating it very strongly to to neoliberal politics and the the whole idea of the the um, the, the uh, the, the the Thatcherite idea of 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 there's no such thing as society, which which I think has permeated pretty effectively into our society and it's damaged it, and it's part of the art world as well. You know this this whole idea of the of individuality mm. and competing with everybody can every it's in art education now. It's completely ruining art education. <laughs> the whole idea of you you are a kind of you are a kind of uh, 
lone individual competing with all the other lone individuals. And the whole idea of communities being, being thrown out the window. So, and that made me interested in this, this German artist, uh, Ulrike Rudelius and her, her videos, which are, they seem to be, um, in some ways that they, they summarize this, or they, they satirize this world of, of attachment insecurity. You know, her use of camera, you know, very often comes so close to the, to the people she's filming that it almost seems intrusive and vaguely erotic. And um, so she's done a series of films with titles like Economic Primacy, um, Rites of Passage, um, and Change Room. Change Room is a really strange film. It's about, uh, she, she's German, but she lives in Amsterdam. And Change Room is about a, the district that she lives in, in Amsterdam, and the way that it is seen to be authentic because it's got, there are old, old-ish people living there who've been living there for years and they're, they're mildly eccentric people and they kind of authenticize the environment. So she made this film about what it would be like if you uh, tried to relaunch the, the neighborhood using younger people acting the parts of these eccentric older people. <laughs> it kind of turns the neighborhood into a kind of Disneyland. Mm. Um, and uh, I mean, another uh, piece that she she's uh, done uh, economic primacy is, 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 is interviews with um, interviews with business, genuine business men uh, filmed in a, a film set that's meant to look like an office. And they're just allowed to free, freely talk about the things that uh, that frustrate them and the things that they want to do in life. And they're just like um, caged animals, really. <laughs> they 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 rail it, ranting and railing against the welfare states. They they they're frustrated by all these things that that hold back their their business, um, and. It's a, it's a, so it's like watching, um, yeah, like it's like watching an animal in a cage, sort of trying to escape from it. The, the, this, these do seem very different approaches to to the artist that so Sophie's dis discussed in her piece. I, I think that, that they're kind of. It's not that well, the think... artists wouldn't appreciate each other's work, but it perhaps, but but it's it's a very different. Way well, I think there's a commonality um, yeah. that runs through all of them, actually, which is this kind of institutional critique, but but not just of the kind of art institution, but of you know these much larger um, societal structures of yes. capital um, and and the politics that are created through you know capitalist interests. Yes. I think I think I think you know all the artists that we're looking at, that we're looking at in both the articles address that from different ways and through different personal experiences and I think that you know like a lot of the artists that um that I've described have come from 
places where um you know there's been you know very tangible fractures and upheavals in society but I think it's interesting the artists that um, Bob's looked at that are you know more Europe and American centered um but that nevertheless see those spaces that ruptures need to happen um within within kind of capitalist doctrine that that becomes very suffocating and very toxic well put well put thank you for yes. that very useful yeah. <laughs> that's what i was thinking <laughs> <laughs> no seriously th thanks a lot for that but, but I, I i was i was probably just drawing on their kind of one of one of one might be using satire as bob said or or a slightly more the the the, the approach to similar situations mm. or was just different that's that's probably what i what mm -hmm. i it's a bit like you know you get artists who use a lot of irony in the art world but it's a very different approach to actually looking somewhere else to an alternative mm. you know mm. you, you can spend all your energy against a system but you don't change it but you feel better because you've criticized it but then mm. but the other way is to look away mm. try and set up and I, I, my feeling is that 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 your your ones, so your your artists, so Sophie, is slightly more. But obviously, the parachute example, for instance, Bob is 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 more connected with. Well, it. yeah, so, I mean, I think that uh, in in my article, the only artists I know are artist A and artist B. I don't know any of the other ones. Right, but Sophie, you're you know you know these people, don't you? And you you your your article, I re what I really liked about it is it's like we are in your world and this is a bit slightly mm -hmm. an autobiographical um... i don't know all of them i know some of them um and there's others certainly who are friends that work in the sa same realm also um and i Hazo and and suzanne bernhardt in particular are artists that work in a very similar way and whose work i i know quite intimately but i think that um you know just going back to matt the way you were saying about like them working in in different ways that's all really important. Like, you yeah. know, like we have to have these different visual aesthetic languages um, that that work for different audiences um, because it, we're part of this kind of fabric that is seeking, a, you know, a sea change. Um, and that has to kind of operate on these different in these different realms and 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 seek out dialogues with very different people to to make change happen. So so even though the artist's work might formally seem to be very different, I think it's part of these much broader um, discussions that go well beyond of contemporary art um, discourse, of course. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Listen, guys, you've done very well. I really appreciate you <laughs> coming on and doing this on a, on a Monday morning. Sophie, whereabouts are you at the moment, by the way? I'm staying at a friend's mum's house on um, in a in a forest on a Swedish island. It's really wow. nice. Yeah, saw... I've come for a little writing retreat to try to work on my PhD for a bit, and it's it's ah. it's, nice. it's a perfect place to be. Yeah, I thought you were getting distracted by wonderful mushrooms. I saw you put something up on Instagram of a. Of a... There's been lots of foraging, yeah. Lots yeah, of foraging. Well, do you know what you're picking? I wouldn't. I, I know what I'm looking at sometimes, but I don't. Yeah. Get, I haven't got the nerve to eat it. I, I haven't got sick yet. I did get a, a nasty rash from something I ate, but <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I'm completely poisoned myself yet. <laughs> it looked like a wonderful place. Very, very 
pure kind of and, and tremendous range of, of of mushrooms. We haven't talked about mushrooms at all, which is kind of funny because they're quite, you know, mycelium and mushrooms and are, are quite a big thing in the art world, aren't they? I've, you know, I go to shows and see yeah. some either models of them or actual mushrooms or yeah. fungi, I should say, shouldn't I? But um, yeah. That, that's but I think that's fundamentally like, you know, in in, in a way at the back of what I was trying to write in the article is this, the, you, know, you know, in the same way that there's this interest in mycelium connections is this, you know, how we draw attention to the minutiae of connection and, and um, relation that we have with everything around us and on these much broader uh, political, economic, social scales. Yeah, my, my, mycelium is an amazing way it links trees together and yeah yeah and and foraging here has just been the most amazing thing because it's like there's so many mushrooms that i've never seen before as well yeah yeah yeah. marvelous marvelous okay guys let's leave it there i think we we, we're nearly up to our to our time and i'll add a little bit on the end to uh, encourage our listeners to subscribe to the (laughs) magazine and therefore hopefully read your your two features and more um, you've both been on the program before, but thanks again for coming on. Really appreciate it. Art Monthly needs its writers, and we uh, we lean on you quite heavily. So thank, thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank it's been you. really lovely. Yeah, it's great. Thank you very much, Matt. You've been listening to the Art Monthly talk show with Sophie J. Williamson and Bob Dickinson discussing their features in the September 2023 issue 469. If you'd like to read these features, which we hope you will, one of the best ways of doing it is to subscribe. You can do that on our website, www.artmonthly.co.uk. You go to the buy button and there's three ways you can do it there. You can book a year's subscription of print magazines, which we posted to you. There's 10 a year and it costs £35 plus post and packing. That's with a direct debit set up. Or you can do print and digital, so you get 10 print issues and digital issue access as well, which also includes the entire back archive or catalogue of the magazine to 1976. So that's 469 issues. That costs £45, post and package, plus post and package, and again, direct debit. Or you can just only use digital and subscribe to a digital subscription per quarter £8.99 or for the year £35.99. Anyway, we really hope you enjoyed the show and that you will subscribe because the idea of the show is, is to promote the magazine. Thanks for listening and we hope you come back and listen again. Bye-bye. <laughs>